Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour. Be a part of the program. It is free call 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this week. Our gadget of the week this week is actually a trio, a collection of gadgets that you'll have to have all together. It is USB-C. This has taken over my life, quite frankly. My body's ready for USB-C because it allows me to pack one charger, one device, and charge all of my stuff. And um, I, I was, it was either this weekend or the weekend before, my, my wife purchased a dog collar. And apparently that has even a Type-C charger built into it. But of course... As one charger becomes prolific, obviously you have to have um, the chargers to charge those devices. And the ones that they include with those devices are not always the best ones. In fact, many of the Type-C chargers, particularly the ones that are included with tablets or phones, are by contrast very low power um, and very cheaply made. And so I've been on the lookout since uh, owning my first device with that had Type-C charger a few years ago, to find the perfect Type-C charger. And what I found is that as much as I don't like Apple products, the Apple 95 or 97-watt Type-C adapter and their cable is the only one to date that I have purchased that works with every laptop I have tried it with, uh, to include Apple's MacBooks, which actually work on many chargers. Um, But HP has a lot of computers that are real picky about what kind of Uh, charger they will accept. Additionally, some of the older ThinkPads, like the X270, um, they had Type-C charging, but it was on the very early onset, and so only chargers that produce higher than 45 watts of power uh, power delivery are able to actually charge um, those those kinds of computers. But every laptop I've connected to charges off of the Apple one, so if you want to be guaranteed that everything's going to work, then go that route. But many of you, as I did, I'm looking for less expensive ones. And when my kids back to school, the school sent them home with new Chromebooks, which all are powered by Type-C. The problem is I didn't want them using the the school's uh, power adapter because they charge $65 to replace that thing, and it doesn't even look like a terribly great power cord. So here are some other options for you. The first is the Anchor Type-C power block. Now, this is a 45-watt, excuse me, 65-watt power block. You can buy the anchor cable and the anchor power block. The power block's 40 bucks and the cable is 20 Now, to put that in perspective for you, the Apple 97-watt power supply is just around $90, and then their cable's another 20-something on top of that. Um, and so this is significantly cheaper. This is down in that $60 uh, range. Now, for general day-to-day purpose stuff, this is really great. I also... I'm, I, the jury is out if I like the idea that the Type-C cable can be disconnected at both ends. But if you're looking for that kind of setup, then this is definitely the way to go, where the brick is separate from the Type-C cable. You plug the Type-C cable and plug, away you go. The other option, if you're looking for a, uh, a slightly more integrated solution, there is a Chinese company that actually makes fairly decent power supplies when we I've ordered a bunch of them to see uh, which ones came back. And this is by a company called, I'm going to try and pronounce this Chinini. 
And um, this is the company that makes a lot of the power adapters for the laptops or System76. Um, and so uh, they've been around for a while. I ordered a couple of their uh, $22 Type-C 65-watt adapters off of eBay, and I was pleasantly surprised when they came in the mail to learn that they look like a regular laptop power supply, a little black brick, exactly how you would expect a laptop power supply to look like. Um, the cord is then attached, and so the only part that is uh, disattachable is the little AC uh, dongle that plugs right into the outlet. And so if you're looking for the least expensive way to reliably charge uh, your Type-C devices, everything from phones, tablets to laptops, highly recommend checking out um, the the Chinini uh, $22 adapter. If you're looking for a more high-end experience, then I would go with uh, something like the Anchor. And then the other device, I, I, I this I've been carrying with me for, I'd say, about the last eight months. It's made by a company called SciTech or SciTechy. And, and, and this company makes essentially Mac knockoff products, but they do a really good job. Um, and I really like the, the, the way that they've designed the devices and the functionality of them. And so this portable charger that they have designed, it has 65-watt uh, Type-C output on one of the Type-C ports, and the second one has an additional smaller output Type-C port that you can use to charge uh, your laptop and your phone simultaneously. And then under that, you have two regular Type-A ports that you can use for even additional devices. The device also supports pass... Or, um, that's the next one. Uh, so that's a really great choice because I only have one device to carry with me in my backpack and have the ability to charge my work laptop, my personal laptop, my tablet, my phone, all of those devices are going to use type C. Uh, if I run out of power on the go, Dell has their portable battery pack. Now this is a type C portable battery pack that again, charges at 65 watts. So and much like everything else offered by Dell in the type C world, it has a, a small little status led right at the top to tell you that it's on. And so you can locate the end of the dongle. The only thing I don't like about this particular battery pack is that it doesn't allow you to swap out the cable. You have to use the one that that's built into it. So if Dell would make that change, I think it would be uh, a little a slightly better solution. But nonetheless, it allows me to basically get a full charge out of my, a second full charge out of my ThinkPad. Now, the way that I use this, if I know I'm going to be away from AC power for an extended amount of time, obviously it would be inefficient to run the laptop battery dead and then charge it back up using the external battery pack. And so what I've opted to do is plug in the battery pack as early as possible, run that down first, then run the laptop down. And the thing that I like about that battery pack being type C, it means I'm never going to have to worry about upgrading that battery pack, when, when I get a new laptop, it's not specific to the brand. It's a Dell power supply, but it's going to work with my Lenovo ThinkPad. And then the final one is uh, the Leviton T563 uh, outlet. And what this is, I've talked about this a couple of times on the show, but this time we'll include a link in the show notes and, 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 and tell you the price, which is $60. Uh, this is an outlet made by Leviton. And uh, the way that this outlet works is you, you, you replace your standard outlet receptacle in your house with this outlet. And in addition to the two AC outlets, top and bottom, they also have a type C port on the left and the right. And so you can charge a device. Now, again, uh, I said that Apple was the only device that I or manufacturer that I tested that worked with all of these devices. If Apple was the one that worked with the most, this Leviton one is the one that worked with the least. It works with my ThinkPad and it works with uh, the Dell XPS. Um, the larger MacBooks don't seem to charge on it. The smaller MacBooks don't, uh, the smaller MacBooks uh, have, uh, do okay as 
does the iPad Pro um, and any of the smaller devices like the phones and stuff don't seem to have an issue with it. Uh, but I, I assume it has to do with the output, the overall output power uh, of this device. But what I found is that even though it's a little limited, um, the standards are getting better. And the other thing is having this available in around my house means I'm not constantly moving my power brick from one room to the other. I just have a type C cable that I take and I'm able to plug it into the outlet. And that starts to feel like the future. Back in July, Thunderbird, Thunderbird 78 was released. Um, it's just now getting to the point where automatic updates will students start to deliver Thunderbird 78 to current users. So the previous release, that is Thunderbird 68. So at that point, no more fixes will be provided for uh, Thunderbird, Thunderbird 68, and that is going to go EOL at the end of this month, of September of 2020. So let's go back into July for a little bit. July, you might remember Thunderbird 78. Um, it was the latest ESR, the extended support release, which means that it's going to they, they, they release one of these every year. And it's considered to be the stable release of the mail client for that year. Um, last year's release focused on ensuring that Thunderbird had a stable foundation. And the new Thunderbird, Thunderbird 78, is aims to improve the experience of Thunderbird and adding a lot of quality of life and, and paper cut improvements. Um, this is something that I supported very early on. I've, I've talked about Thunderbird being a, a fairly underrated um, mail client. I think it's much better than most people give it credit for. And a lot of the people that go Thunderbird and you're still using a local mail client. You haven't, have you tried it recently? Uh, they redesigned the compose window. So they've added um, a couple more options, taking them out of the menu bars and giving you actual buttons for them. Dark mode is now native. Hallelujah. Uh, huge thanks to deep dark. It was a plugin for Thunderbird that I used for well, as long as I can remember. Um, to make Thunderbird uh, have a dark mode, I'm excited to see that native dark mode is included. And they're going to be including uh, Lightning, which is their calendar plugin as a core function of Thunderbird going forward. Now, as this release came out in July, and I, I was kind of waiting to, to, to wait till it actually rolls out, which is what's going to happen this week um, or very soon. And so now is kind of where I wanted to address this because Thunderbird is doing something kind of unique here. Uh, traditionally, people have used something called Enigma, which was an add-on used with Thunderbirds, uh, which was used in previous versions of Thunderbird to be able to encrypt mail. Additionally, uh, people like me used the Lightning extension for calendars and used a, an extension for dark mode and so on and so forth. Uh, with this release of Thunderbird 78, one of the things that they're doing is going through some of these very popular extensions, very popular things that people wanted to do, and then they're actually rolling that into a fundamental part of of, of Thunderbird, and that's true with encryption. Um, they've implemented the encryption a little bit differently, partly because of technical necessity, but also because they're trying to simplify the workflow of people who use Thunderbird. I can't tell you how many times I walk into a client and that client is still using plain email or still using fax to deliver sensitive information. Because right now, um, that, well, fax for sure is still considered even by healthcare to be a secure way to transmit information. They're still doing that for prescriptions. Most of the rest of the IT industry has kind of moved away from transmitting insecure information, banking industry, healthcare industry. It's kind of moved away from doing that in email. But to the extent that they still want to offer electronic uh, 
versions of what was a paper equivalent, instead of having an open standard like PGP or an Enigma, they're using um, their own platform that they're building. And then they charge people to host medical records or whatever on these secure platforms that, that can then be downloaded. And so what I like about this story, or what I like about what Thunderbird is doing here is they, they actually asked for help from Enigma and use the help of a migration tool um, that 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 allows users uh, to migrate all of their settings and keys and so on and so forth uh, back into this new core feature that's centered around OpenPGP uh, inside of Thunderbird 78. Now, like I said, unlike Enigma, OpenPGP is being used in Thunderbird 78, and it's not using GNU-PG. Uh, this was necessary essentially to provide an integrated experience to users on other platforms. Um, but the... the um, but RMP is a newer project uh, in comparison to GPG. It has certain limitations. For example, it currently lacks the support for open GPG smart cards. As a workaround, Thunderbird 78 offers an optional configuration for advanced users, which requires additional manual setup. But this can, al this can allow the operational use of separately installed GNU PG software and private key operations. So uh, not a lot of huge feature changes, except for the encryption part. And it's an interesting time that they're choosing to do this because a lot of people, if they're looking for secure mail at this point, have probably probably moved on to something like Proton Mail and they're not using a, 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 a you know their their traditional email provider. But the thing that I think that Thunderbird has right here and why I think this is a big deal is email is successful mostly because it's an established standard. It doesn't matter what company you work for. It doesn't matter what country you work for. It doesn't matter what hours you work. The concept of email is fairly universal. And so some people host on Gmail and some people host on ProtonMail and some people host their own, but they can all inter they can all communicate with each other. And the thing that is, the thing that is lacking is proper encryption. Now, the nice thing about the way that ProtonMail works is that any other proton mail user is obviously able to send and receive uh, messages and this is good because it allows for very easy setup and i'm sure andy and and, and his team have uh, guides and actually i know they do because they 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 use this as how you get uh, proton mail to work with a native client in linux is you must use a bridge um, and so they work and build stuff like that to make it backwards compatible um, with uh, with legacy infrastructure but it, the time, we are getting close to the point where we really uh, should be moving forward with encryption on email. And so to have your, th your mail client develop this as a core feature and then take and borrow from other places that have already developed secure crypto and then just implement it is a big deal and it's really cool. And so I've tried a, a number of different mail clients on Linux. I'd be lying to you if I said that I am... I'd be lying to you if I said I was terribly impressed, but at the end of the day, uh, Thunderbird, uh, I'm able to use it on a day-to-day -day basis. And and this is it comes from a perspective of a guy who has I've spent my time setting up Microsoft Outlook, so I've seen what the what the I guess industry standard in the IT world uh, uses, um, at least from a software perspective. And then all of the rest of the web clients, they kind of spider out from there. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. I see in the chat room, Atypical Colonel says that um, 
he's in Mumble. Uh, I have both Mumble and Matrix on, so you're welcome to join. Uh, you can join us in the Matrix room. You can join us over at riot.linuxdelta.com. You sign up for a free account there, participate in Noah's booth, join us in the uh, Jitsi room. I guess I'll take this time to mention, starting next week, we're going to transition away from the IRC room for the on-screen chat um, and transition over to Matrix. And so we're going to try to tie that IRC back in. So if there are people that are there and want to participate in the show, they'll still be welcome to do that. We're just going to change what, what it is that's actually shown on the screen. And it'll also provide one place that people can go to both participate in the actual chat portion as well as jump into Jitsi. Uh, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. I can't drag uh, you in, but we can go over to... Uh, to uh, to staging or um, or one of these other rooms here, and uh, and perhaps we can talk in there. Oh, somebody got you in. Hey, Colonel, welcome to the Ask Noah show. That's an interesting name that you chose there. Yeah, so um, we had this just goes to show that Noah's around all the time because I had pinged him in Matrix about a issue with a Logitech mouse. He pointed me at the Solar software and. That has failed me. So the issue is, is that the MX, it's an MX Anywhere mouse, the V1, and it is no longer working with the dongle. Um, I can go in and the solar software sees the dongle, but when I try to pair it, it just fails to pair. Now, there's a one single light on the mouse, and it's flashing three yellow flashes and one red. Um, I don't know. I've my online search foo has failed me, and so has Solar. So I don't know if you've got another solution. Um, there, the only other one I know of, and it's not nearly as polished as Solar is. There is another one called I think it's called L Tunify. Um, if if my if, yeah, here it is L Tunify. Um, but it's you. You have to build it from 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 uh, from code. They it, they they have a Git repo up. I'll I'll, I'll put this in the uh, in the show notes for you. So there, that's the other one that you can use. But I'd be interested if Solar is seeing the receiver. It almost seems to me as you might have a problem with a faulty mouse or a faulty receiver. Have you considered that? Well, and that's what I'm thinking is it's a faulty mouse because the only thing I found online that seems to do anything at all is in buried in a forum post, somebody was talking about holding down the right click and then clicking the left click six times. And if I do that, the error light changes. So there's something wrong with the mouse, I believe, not the dongle. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, uh, that gives you something to go off to, but it would explain why your mouse became unpaired and also why uh, the uh, a Linux program that has worked for me and as far as I know is still actively maintained is unable to repair that back with its uh, receiver. Yeah, something else interesting is that when I initially um, I installed the solar software and turned the mouse on and the solar software did not see the, the mouse. I mean, it showed that it was paired, but it didn't actually see it as connected at the time. Mm-hmm. However, when I clicked the mouse, turned the mouse on, the battery status in KDE came up and showed it there. Wow. Yeah. It, huh. 
So there, the mouse is talking to the dongle, but for some reason, it's not talking properly. <laughs> well, I guess give Eltunify a, a, a shot and see if that gets you anywhere, and then uh, come back next week and let me know if it worked. Yeah, will do. That doesn't work. I'll just tell you to go buy a new mouse. <laughs> 855 450 it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. So Brown is, uh, Brown, uh, excuse me, uh, back up here a little bit. Uh, so your data is for sale, this time by Pandemic Safety Service, run by Alphabet subsidiary, Verily. Um, so Verily Life Services is owned by Google, their parent company, Alphabet Corporation. And they're one of the first places to try to roll out this program called Healthy at Home. And this, the idea is a website for software that surveys workers or students or employees for symptoms and then it does everything end to end. It helps schedule coronavirus tests and manage the test results and deliver those back to the users and the universities and or employers, those kinds of things. Um, the site uses uh, the site that is used to schedule these tests looks very similar to uh, Google's office suite. Um, but if the test comes back negative, there's a graphic that just says you're, you're everything is fine. If, the test comes back positive or he indicates that he has some symptoms and further exploration is necessary. Um, then the system recommends an actual swab. Now the university of Alabama system is using Verily's new service. And in their case, the swabs are processed by commercial labs for a small number of customers. They Verily recently opened their own accredited COVID-19 lab in San Francisco and Microsoft has uh, has its own bundle of COVID error tools that they're trying to use to help for symptom screening and test scheduling, as well as mobile apps that can display a digital pass to control access to an office. Um, Oracle, Salesforce, they've all started their own pandemic service on top of their existing products for managing staff and customer relationship. Now, I, I, to a certain extent, understand the concept that when there is a need, companies are going to seek to fill that void. And so to a certain extent, it stands to reason that the entire economy has somewhat ground to a halt because you have people that can't get back into their workforce. And so these companies that rely on those other companies to make their money have to get their people back in and they deal with logistics and have all of that infrastructure and automated processes so that when you punch somebody's name into an HR system, it automatically just enrolls them for the key cards. It signs them into the time system, creates their, you know, login, all of those kinds of things. So it's natural in some cer certain circumstances to look to this and say, well, is this a person, is this a way that we could solve this problem? But I have to ask you, what is the limitation of these tech companies? If I said to you, you're going to a search engine and you're trusting them with your health data, you would tell me that sounds crazy. And you'd say, no, I'm not. I'm just using the testing services. And then I'm, I'm positive. I'm referred to a doctor. Quote, if a person does report, report symptoms, they get a call asking for more information and, if necessary, a recommendation to get a coronavirus, te coronavirus test. The university can rely on its own lab, but Salesforce also has a partnership with CVS to provide tests. At Kentucky, Test results from the University of the Medical Center are logged into Salesforce and positive tests are automatically open a case with a team of contact tracers who then use software that the company developed after Rhode Island Governor Gina Wamondo asked Salesforce CEO Mark Benoff for help. 
So let's recap. You want to stay healthy at work. And so there is a service and this service coordinates all of the testing and all of the health data and all of the notification with all of these other companies so that you don't have to deal with any of this, that it's, it just becomes another software as a service. Hey, coronavirus, you want to deal with that software as a service. So Google also known as the alphabet company has that. I mean, I should, the alphabet company has that data. They claim that Google, Google, the search engine doesn't have access to that. CVS likely has access to that data, or at least the aggregate. University Medical Center has access to that data because they're doing the testing. Salesforce has access to that data, or at least the aggregate. The State Department of Public Health likely has access to that data in aggregate, they specify. Tyler Grayhart, the university's director of digital engagement, said that the program works so well that it convinced the university they should spend more money with Salesforce. That, that was the outcome of the test is that they should spend more money with Salesforce. Not it helped keep our students safer and help keep them healthy. And no, it worked really well. We should spend more money with Salesforce quote in the long term. It's not a pandemic response app. It's a system for engagement and health and well-being across the university tactics being used, survey and monitor staff and students for coronavirus today, but it could be adapted for other uses tomorrow, such as helping students with anxiety or other health related issues. Just what we want. Just what we want. We want Salesforce and the Alphabet Company and CVS Pharmacy to be tracking everything that's wrong with students. Quote, coronavirus, coronavirus is encouraging people to make decisions with far less time and far less discussion than we've had in the past. And the privacy ramifications of what we are going through across the world are huge. And it's terrifying to me that these systems are not just being proposed. They're being put into place. They're being put into place by large companies who, who are collecting that data. They're being partnered with state agencies. So if you go to that university, in one particular case that I was looking at, the, the school system everywhere in the state had no choice but to participate in, in, in this healthier at work, healthier at at class, it was every, I think it was Alabama, required every education to participate. Uh, oh, here it is. One of the largest health, one of the largest healthy at work rollouts is in Alabama, a collaboration between state government and the University of Alabama, Birmingham called GuideSafe, tapped Verily to assist testing every student attending public or private college in the state before they return to campus for the new year. Bob Phillips, executive director of GuideStafe, says that Verily has made it possible for students to submit information, schedule a test, check in at a testing site for their nasal swab using only their phone without ever touching a piece of paper, which is impressive. It's very, it's very consumer focused. No, it's not. It's focused at making the, the, the path to resistance to doing it less. Now, here's the thing. I am not against if you want to take uh, advantage of convenience, okay? I order stuff for Amazon every live long day for my business because it's a faster way than us. It, it is faster and more cost effective for me to order things from Amazon and then resell them to customers than it is for me to try to maintain an individual stock here in Grand Forks, North Dakota. That's just the, that's just the world I live in in 2020 as, a, as an owner of an IT company. So I understand to a certain extent that sometimes it makes sense to just farm something out or source something out. What I have a problem with here specifically is the lack of consent, the lack of consent by the person. I'm sure there's a disclaimer in there somewhere. Uh, 
But there doesn't appear to be a lot of discussion and there doesn't appear to be a lot of informed consent of exactly what people are signing themselves up for. I know that Amazon is taking my data every time that I make a purchase to try to encourage me to spend more money with them. That's their job. But I am very much decidedly not okay with a portion of this uh, success and going to companies that have a, a, a track history, particularly in the case of Oracle, of making some questionable choices. And now those people are in charge of data that directly relates to health. And you might be asking yourself, well, what can they use that data for? I'm glad you asked because they verily has a privacy policy and I went through it. They specifically, ex they explicitly state that they're, they're collecting this data for use of research and processing the data for Google services. Additionally, they say that they communicate test results uh, of a COVID infection risk to the university, to your employer. Uh, they assess your eligibility to be physically present at work. And those things are then given back to the employer or the university, as well as help to improve the algorithm and procedures and help uh, coordinate with state local government. Uh, they collect contact information such as home address, date of birth, sex, uh, uh, sex at birth that they use to refer for a COVID test if you're selected. Um, that part's not so unusual, but then they say that they may share your information with authorized testing sites, healthcare professionals involved in the collection, or biospecimens that have a test for clinical laboratories and that collected the biospecimens, and for purposes related to performing the tests. Um, they also say that they include uh, the generation of statistics that don't necessarily identify you personally, but once that information has been shared with the university, quote, verily cannot control how the information is treated or used. So I, I, I wind up at the other end of that, basically uh, coming away a little concerned, but mostly just asking before you sign up for 23andMe, before you sign up for Verily, before you sign up for whatever the next thing is that's going to offer you that next piece of convenience. I get it. You download the Amazon app, you click on the button, the thing shows up at your house. I'm all about the easy button too, but... This may come with too high of a privacy cost and nobody is having the discussion about about the concerns and where this data is stored and where it's going to go. And that should concern you. Again, one 855 No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Matt joins us. Hey, Matt, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, how's it going? Good, good. How can I help? Uh, I was wondering if there's a way to use the TPM module to encrypt a Linux drive like BitLocker does for Windows. That's a great question. Um, I've not seen anything uh, with Lux, which is the, the encryption that um, that uh, I take it back. There is. There is an open source project called Linux-Lux-TPM-Boot. Um, and, uh, and, and it's designed for giving physical access uh, to to the data um so it's I, I i'd have to go through here and actually run through and see how this works it looks like it's fairly involved that you have to that you have to make some modifications to grub and um and actually it looks like they're using a, a separate version called trusted grub 2 um so and and then you you're you're manually adding the the key file into Lux and and doing all of those kinds of things but it does look like there is progress on supporting this i would assume that at some point this will just become 
uh, standard practice is we have hardware in the computer we can't take advantage of. Um, looking uh, looking a little further, it looks like there is some it's it's hotly debated uh, how to use uh, an FDE key to, in the TPM module with Lux. Um, so I will um, I'll dig into that and we'll 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 look into that a little bit more. That might be a fun demo. Awesome. Uh, I'll follow up next week or in Matrix. Thank you for your help. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the, for the interesting question. Again, 855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. I've, I've never looked at the TPM module. I've, I've, uh, I've used the YubiKey um, because it's one physical hardware device that provides me a couple different features. But I never really dug into to the TPM module. Hey, that question doves, dovetails ni- nicely into what we're talking about this episode, and that is generating strong passwords. Um, there are a few ways to secure your account, and this can be any account, an account that you have online, an account that you have uh, for one of your devices or services at home, or it can be an account on, on someone else's device. Um, there are two ways to do it. Of course, you can choose a password, but to pick a sufficiently complex password that can't be brute force, that is, you can't use a computer program to guess the password, it would have to be so long and so complicated that becomes very difficult to remember. A GPU cluster from December of 2012 uh, can brute force an eight-character password in under six hours. And so the, the evolution of passwords, obviously, is to make them longer and, of course, more complex, but that becomes harder to remember. And so passphrases were invented. And passphrases are a collection of words, and it doesn't matter if they are easily remembered as long as they're not typically used in a sentence together, because this is what's going to allow entropy. Uh, To introduce entropy or randomness, we are going to use a list. Um, It's called the Dice Words List, containing 7,776 English words, and they're each numbered with a five-digit number. And the idea is pretty simple. You roll a pair of dice and it gives you, uh, it, it'll give you two numbers. And so you go through, you actually, I guess you'd roll five dice because you'll, you'll need five individual digits. Each number is five. Um, so you can roll five dice at once or you can roll one die five times. But you'll go through that list and write down each one of these words. These words are chosen randomly by the dice. Um, the reason that this is more secure is because if the if if an attacker gets access uh, to a server that contains passwords, the passwords aren't typically stored in plain text. They're stored as hashes and they may get a copy of the hashes, but they're incapable of mathematically converting the hashes back into the letters, numbers and symbols that the user originally chose. And so the in the event of a security breach that exposes the password data, the attacker still has to painstakingly guess the plain text meaning for each hash. Now, that process can be sped up uh, with the use of rainbow tables and and what's known about the hashing algorithm. And so to that point, there are some places that dice words are 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 not suggested. Uh, one of those uh, any situation where an attacker can get a copy of the encrypted password and use high volume cracking attempts, um, this is a bad case. And and so, for example, one of the worst cases that you could do is use something like a passphrase to secure your Bitcoin wallet because Bitcoin nodes have a copy of the Bitcoin ledger. And so an attacker could attempt to brute force cracking your wallet, um, even though the password is stored in a hash. Um, 
as people have correlated a, a, a particular hashing algorithm back into plain text and say, okay, when you see this hash, um, that means that this is the plain text password. They'll pre-compute tables like that, and they are called rainbow tables. And you can load a rainbow table specifically for the purpose of speeding up cracking uh, passwords. Now, XMN in the chat room says that his passphrase is asknoahshow.com. Is that still a great podcast to learn cool stuff? Please don't share. (laughs) Um, So where a passphrase is appropriate, if you have devices that you sign into frequently, uh, a smart TV, a streaming media device, those kinds of things, Um, if you have computers at work that you use, if you have online sites that you use and you're going to have to look them up out of a password manager and then type them out. Obviously, if you have the password manager on your computer, the password manager will automatically fill it in. And so in the case where the password manager is always going to do the work of filling in your passwords, you always want to choose a real password. You wouldn't, there's no need to take, um, there's no need to limit yourself uh, to the pre-populated list of, of, of diceware words that already exist. You can just generate random characters. But in the case where you're going to have to type that password frequently, and so in, in my example at the radio station, I have there are certain resources that I have to use. Um, I don't have my password manager, obvi- for obvious reasons, logged into equipment that's not mine, and so I'm looking this password up out of my phone. Having a diceware password or a passphrase allows you to, to type that in. Additionally, uh, the, the, the security of using a diceware passphrase increases tremendously. So if you use a five-word diceware passphrase, this gives an entropy of 7,776 to the power of five. Uh, in other words, it's mathematically impossible to guess with any sort of consumer-grade hardware. At that point, you're going to have to have some sort of uh, state attack or pre-populated rainbow table, something like that. Now, when it comes to actually cracking a password, I made a reference to a GPU cluster from 2012 that could, depending on the cryptographic hashing algorithm used, cycle through 350 billion guesses per second. Mind you, this is hardware from 2012. Now, Referring to that project, they claim that they can crack an eight-character password in under six hours. So what that should tell you is that it's time to make your passwords more secure. Actually, it has been for a few years. At that speed, attacking a five-word diceware passphrase would take an average of 7,300 hours or 10 months to find the correct passphrase, assuming they knew uh, that you were using diceware and developed an equally efficient software designed to try only valid diceware combinations. Now, you might ask yourself, Noah, Who's going to spend 10 months trying to guess my password? And the truth is, probably not many people. However, if your account resides somewhere that has any sort of value associated with it, what you have to understand is a a new criminal enterprise is designing malicious software that goes and infects servers and uses that those server resources to then crack other people's passwords. And so they they participate in a botnet. Jeremy Gosney, uh, who's a password expert, from Stricture Consulting Group, used a commodity computer with a single AMD 7970 graphics card, and it took him 20 hours to crack 14,000 hashes. Um, Essentially, what happened was ARS Technica did a study. And as part of that study, uh, Nate Anderson, who is an ARS uh, deputy editor and a self-admitted newbie to password cracking, downloaded a list of 16,000 cryptographically hashed passwords. Within a few hours, he had deciphered almost half of them, and so the moral of their article was that if a reporter with zero training can 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 do this in like an, in like a few hours, just imagine what a real season attacker can do. But they didn't stop there. 
they went and got three bona fide password crackers. And even the least successful cracker of their trio, who used the least amount of hardware, devoted only one hour, and used a tiny word list and conducted an interview throughout the process of deciphering these passwords, still got 62% of the passwords. Their top cracker nailed 90% of the passwords. So you're asking yourself, what software did these top hackers use to crack these passwords? Well, the software is called Hashcat, and it's freely available. It's an open source piece of software. Um, you might have heard it referred to as OCL Hashcat. Originally, Hashcat was designed to run on the processor. When GPUs started to come out and become so insanely powerful and started to be used for um, doing a lot of math work on things like cryptocurrency, they also became very popular for uh, cracking passwords. And so a different version of OCL Hashcat to utilize GPU uh, power was introduced. It's, it was called OCL Hashcat. Uh, now they have just combined both of those projects. Really, when I say combined, they've deprecated the regular Hashcat because the truth is nobody's really pa cracking passwords on CPU. It's just not fast enough. And so most people are doing that with a graphics card or a collection of graphics cards. Um, so if you're doing that, you can download the Hashcat. It's, uh, the software is available at, at um, Hashcat. Is it Hashcat.net? Hashcat? I'll, I'll look up the URL and have it in the show notes. Um, but the takeaways there are, if you have a drive or some account that you need to get into, uh, you're highly encouraged to take a look at Hashcat. I've played with it a couple of times. I've never had something I was truly locked out of and been able to get back into. Ah, thank you. Hashcat.net. Um, I've never been able to get back into something that I was previously locked out of. And so if I don't have that kind of, uh, 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 that kind of experience with Hashcat, probably because I don't have the kind of hardware that these guys are using. Um, I looked in, um, you know, the study was conducted back in 2012. So I was looking at what is available today. And there are people that build, uh, 10, 15, $20,000 hashing rigs just to crack passwords. In fact, uh, the guy who did this study, his consulting firm, uh, I think it's called TerraHash, and that's what they do. They go through and, and, um, and crack passwords for people or test passwords. But 90% of passwords were cracked when using proper tools with a, with a trained professional. And uh, what you should take away from that is that passwords, if they're eight characters or less, are just simply not secure. And if you go to most sites, the password recommendation still follows the the uh, National Institute of Standards uh, thing that says, hey, it has to be eight characters or, or more and has to contain a, uh, an uppercase and a special character and, and so on and so forth. Um, that's just not accurate anymore. Uh, it hasn't been for, for, for quite a few years. So if you're... Looking for solutions there, uh, what can you do about it? The first is you should start using a password manager. I've made this argument numerous times before. I use Bitwarden um, for everyday stuff and KeePass XC for stuff that just doesn't need to be on the internet. Now, quick word about password managers. The first thing you should do is start using a password manager. The second thing you should do is you should enable two-factor authentication. Here's why. If you don't have two-factor authentication, but you do have a password manager, that means you're creating a directory listing of all of the places that you visit, what your username, what your password is, and probably the exact login place to use that username and password. If somebody were to compromise that vault or that password storage, they have not only the passwords that you're using, but they know exactly where to use it, and they have the username. So if you're using a password manager, you absolutely have to have a 
uh, second two-factor authentication, you have to have that secured. Um, the second thing that you should uh, pay attention to is not letting anyone get a hold of your hashes. If it's true that we don't want people to have access uh, to our hashes on servers, then we certainly don't want people to have access to the, the, the keys or the encrypted hashes for the vault. And so you should use a service and or software that allows you to keep track of that yourself. Now, uh, Bitwarden does this. KeePass XC does this. The, the reason I uh, like KeePass XC, and I'll get to this in a little bit, is because it allows me to generate the previously mentioned passphrases. Now, once we're using a password manager and that password manager doesn't have access to the private key, then you can secure the, that password manager with a passphrase. Now, this is something that you can easily remember, and that way you'll always be able to access your vault from anywhere. The key for it is inside of your head, but all of the actual accounts used to authenticate are using very strong passwords, with the exception of the ones that, as I said, you might have to use on a more frequent basis. From there on out, you use the password manager to generate secure passwords from every account. But what about secure? What about generating the original DiceWord passphrase that you're going to use to secure your vault? How do you do that? Well, for generating DiceWord passphrases, you have a couple of options. You can go the Edward Snowden route and you can take a sheet and put it over your head to avoid any cameras or anybody spying around you. You can take the list that you've already printed of, of DiceWare passphrases. You can go under your sheet and you can roll the dice and write down the password that you generate. Um, if you're one level less paranoid than that, then it is possible to do all of this on your computer. Obviously, there are a number of people that have written open source software to deal with passphrases. And so if you install, there's a program called Diceware. You can install it as a CLI application, and you can use it that way and just generate uh, a Diceware password every single time. And of course, it has a number of different options. So you can generate the number of Diceware passwords if you want them to use uh, special characters, those kinds of things. Uh, make modifications to the password. Um, but many password managers actually natively support this. And this is something I'm really excited to see because, again, if I'm using Bitwarden to generate all of the passwords for, let's say, online accounts, so any any account that, I have to, that I'm forced to create through a web browser, I'm usually saving that password inside of Bitwarden. The fact that it allows me to generate passphrases means that I can remember the, the passphrases to the sites that I have to use frequently. And so having that feature built right into to Bitwarden is a good thing. And if I'm going to store it in Bitwarden anyway, why not just generate it there? There's no additional security in generating it that I can see anyway, uh, generating it from rolling the dice unless you believe that Bitwarden itself is compromised. Um, and so KeePass X, uh, excuse me, KeePass XC, same thing. So there's regular KeePass. KeePass XC also allows you to generate a passphrase uh, right inside of uh, the, 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 the password manager. The other thing I like about both Bitwarden and KeePass, they give you some indication of the strength. And why that's important is, as I was going through research for, uh, for the show, a lot of the material that came out around encouraging people to use passphrases was more popular back in 2012, 2013, um, when, they, when they were just starting rolling out. I think these days it's become pretty popular. If you sign up for an account at riot.linuxdelta.com, you'll find that it, auto it forces you to generate a passphrase to secure your encryption keys. Um, and they call it a passphrase. They refer to it as passphrase. And so these days, I think people are a little bit more familiar with it. Um, but what you find is that this has been in, in, in development for a long time. And a lot of people have been working on trying to how exactly to tackle this problem. Uh, and what you, what, what, you, what you eventually arrive at is there's no way you're going to be able to remember all of the passwords because you should be using a different one for every site and every service. 
if you can't remember all the passwords, then you're going to have to store them all in a central place and secure that. And so the best way to do that is to use a passphrase. This way you can remember the pass the password. Uh, the most insecure thing you can do, obviously, is write the password down and, and, and keep it around. And this is something that's still, still far too prevalent in the IT industry. So I hope that offers you some help uh, as to generating secure passwords and using secure passwords. Again, every site you go to, you want to generate a, a, a separate username and password for that site if you can. Um, that's going to allow you, uh, in the event that that site is compromised, just to cycle that one password and they don't have access to everything else. I think a lot of people don't realize that in, in these websites, when there is a dump, um, there's just a file that gets put out that says, Here's either the hash table or uh, in some of the worst case scenarios, they'll put the actual user account and the actual password. And chances are, if that password works for one account, that same person has used that email and password for something else. And um, the last thing I would say is just kind of a general do all security thing. Um, if you can enable notifications on your device to alert you when somebody else logs into that device. Uh, oftentimes it will include the IP address, which can be super helpful because if you go to ipchicken.com, have kind of an idea what your home IP is and what your work IP is, and all of a sudden something pops up and uh, it, it's it's something that you've not seen before, it gives you an alert that somebody is trying to access your account. And uh, so uh, those are my tips for password generation, password management, and uh, if you need more help, pay attention to the fine folks over at Bitwarden and XC. They're continuing to move the password industry forward. And again, like I said, the, the, the reminder of the password strength is kind of nice because as the password strength that suggestion increases, that bar is going to increase as well. And so um, back when the standards came out in 2012, uh, that bar, if you put the same password into XC today as you did back then, it would tell you that it's a weaker password. And that's what you want to see. It means you don't have to trail uh, what's happening in the security world. You just have to trust a product. And, uh, and Bitwarden and KeePassXC are, are, are two of my favorites. Uh, what I would tell you, if you're having struggle trying to figure out which one of those two to use, uh, Bitwarden is the easiest one-to-one -one replacement for something like LastPass. You simply just sign up for an account, put your passwords in there. It will do everything else for you. It works fantastic. Um, if you want to upgrade to the two-factor authentication and premium features, I encourage you to do so. And you can do that through Bitwarden. just costs a couple of bucks a month. Uh, KeePassXC is an open source uh, key keep uh, password manager you can download right from your repos or I believe there's also a snap package of it. And then the thing that I really like about KeePassXC is it allows me to have a separate key file as well as a separate uh, password for uh, encrypting my database. And then I can keep that database completely off the network, completely offline. It's simply read uh, even by a computer that runs something like Tails, which has KeePassXC pre-installed for the purpose of reading a KeePass database. And in this way, if you don't have any Wi-Fi or any Bluetooth chips in there, you're going to be able to keep that completely uh, off the internet. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Dennis writes in and says, Hey, Noah, I live in the woods and rely on totally on my AT&T wireless hotspot for all of our internet. We have a rare unlimited account, so it's a great solution. I'm currently using Velocity Hotspot, but wanted some more router control. I looked at the Netgear Nighthawk, but it's a bit out of my budget. Is there a simple way to allow a basic home router to handle all of my network traffic? I want to access things like OpenDNS, Mac filtering. Is there some sort of ad hoc solution way to accomplish this? Love your show and thank you for your time. Now, there's a second email that kind of comes along the same 
uh, the, the, the same lines. This is Andy writes in and says, Noah, like many, I use a consumer router at home along as some more Wi-Fi access points. I'm concerned that my router may be sending private data to the manufacturer and I don't really have control over it. It's also Singapore failure and I don't know how to replace it quickly if it dies. Is there a good router device? for a large home network to provide the router functions, including static DHCP IP addresses. I'd love separate keys for wired and network functionalities and Wi-Fi access. Thanks, uh, Andy. Well, the answer to both of you is, is, is the same, and that would be PFSense. The thing, that I've, the thing that I've really come to like about PFSense is the recognition for Wi-Fi and radio adapters in, in, in BSD has actually been very good for a long time. And what we've been able to do in a lot of cases is you can take the uh, you take the SIM card out of the actual hotspot and place it into a regular USB modem. Now you can go to AT&T's website and find um, or eBay and find a, a USB AT&T uh, LTE modem, and you plug that into a USB port of a device running PFSense. That device will then populate inside of PFSense as a regular WAN adapter and allow you to use treat it just like you would treat it any other WAN connection. Now there is a downside here that we've run into, and I'll address it. It is that some cellular networks uh, double NAT, and so they, I don't know if it's truly double NATed, but they have a private IP space inside that your phone actually gets, and then it routes traffic outside. So while this may work for most things on the internet, um, what I would tell you is there, there have been certain situations in where we've run into some issues with the way that those networks are set up, because it's not a true public IP address, and so... PFs, the, the way that packets come in, they're identified and stuff like that isn't always exactly the same. But if you're looking just to get a little bit more advanced than having uh, just the options that are built into the, the MiFi, then PFSense is a great way to go, again, with a, just a USB LTE modem. I would reference both PFSense to see which uh, LTE modems they officially support, as well as I would have a conversation with AT&T and figure out which models um, that they support if you're on AT&T Internet. Uh, as far as 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 not giving manufacturers access to private data and wanting uh, more control over it, you just want to cycle your router. I would say, um, you if you want separate keys for wired and, and Wi-Fi functionality, um, the kind of security that there there's two ways to go about doing that. Um, the the easiest way is if you are purchasing Unify access points, you can just tick the box that says uh, guest portal, and what that will do is it will separate. It'll drop all of the local LAN traffic from anywhere except the gateway for guest users. So they, they don't have access to anything else on the network. The second way you can do it is in PFSense, you can actually create firewall rules and tell it, hey, this particular, anything that comes in on this subnet can't talk to that subnet, um, or any, any, any people that exist on this internet interface can't talk to that interface. Uh, PFSense also has a built-in uh, wizard for setting up guest control, so you can do it that way as well. In either event, the nice thing about PFSense is you don't have to spend any money to try this out and see if it'll work for you. You can go ahead and download PFSense, download the ISO, burn it onto a uh, flash drive, and install it onto a spare PC. Then you can go to Amazon.com, and they have some network cards that are dual NIC network cards. And what a dual NIC gets you is both, obviously, a WAN connection and a LAN connection. So I'll have those cards linked for you in the show notes and you can check those out. Um, they're, they're not very expensive. They're about 24 bucks. There's also some people on eBay that will repurpose uh, uh, like Barracuda firewalls and um, 
there's a there's another watchdog is a really popular one. People will repurpose them and put PF Sense on them. And so if you just want to buy a, a PF Sense box uh, on the cheap, you can do that on eBay. If you want to buy one with support, if this is going into a business or you think you might want to use it as a business, then you can go through NetGate and purchase one of their SG3100s. <clears throat> That's what we're typically using these days for clients. Um, they have bigger ones if you want it. The nice thing about that is it comes with support as well as it's been tested by NetGate to ensure that it works perfectly with PFSense. It's become our standard deployment, and I am—I couldn't be happier. OpenVPN wizard, site-to-site wizard, everything is just easier. Absolutely fantastic. Hey, thanks for joining us. We are excited to have you. If you'd like to follow us throughout the week, follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. Huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, JTR producer. That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com.